0: Hey folks, this is Kevin Wait a minute, this isn't Kevin at all In fact, it sounds like someone else entirely What in Sam Hill is going on here? I expected Kevin Allison to be hosting this episode Well, I'll go into a little bit more detail about what's going on in just a minute But first, on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ernest and Finn
1: Today you picked the wrong day I don't care if you're 80 I don't I'm going to rip your fucking head off (laughs)
0: That and more. But before that, I want to introduce myself. I'm JC Cassis, the producer of Risk, guest hosting while Kevin's away, and I'll explain more about what's going on a little later in the episode. But before that, I want to let you know that you can find and click on all the links for all the things we mention on Risk by scrolling down on the page in your podcast player where you're listening to Risk. Look below the episode description and you'll find links to our website, our Patreon, our book, Kevin's Cameo, and coaching site, and subtext, how to make a one-time donation, and more. So anytime we mention a link on the podcast and you think, I want to check that out, but I'm never going to remember that website URL, just remember, you don't have to remember it. You can just scroll down below the episode description in your podcast player and see and click on any of our links that you want. Also, you probably know by now that we do shout outs on the podcast for anyone giving us $25 a month or more on Patreon. Patreon. So this week, we want to say a big thank you to the following $25 a month or more patrons. We have Kelsa or Chelsea, not sure which, but Kelsa or Chelsea Mossing. Thank you, Kelsa or Chelsea. Stefan or Stefan Durham. Thank you, Stefan or Stefan. Harold Cox. Thank you, Harold. Harold told an incredible story on a recent Risk live online show that you guys are going to love, and he is quite a character. So it's very cool that he's supporting us. We also have Carissa Johnson, who also told an amazing story on a a recent Risk Live online show. Thank you, Carissa. And Christy Brown. Thank you, Christy. We want to encourage all our fans to become members of the Risk Patreon so you can get rewards like extra stories, behind-the-scenes interviews with storytellers and the Risk team, free tickets to our live online shows, and much more. Here's a clip of the bonus story we'll be sharing with our Patreon members this week by the wonderful Mike Bobrinskoy.
2: All of the solo cup, which I told him to fill up, is 16 ounces. And that is too much vodka. And he said, you sure? And I said, dude, I'm Russian. I got it.
0: If you want access to all our bonus content, head over to patreon.com risk. That's patreo dot slash risk and sign up to give any amount you want per month from a $1 dollar to a hundred dollars. We don't care. We just need your money. We're like a restaurant in that way. A restaurant that serves you piping hot, delicious, true stories. Mmm.
3: Families have a lot going on.
0: kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm JC Cassis, the producer of Risk, hosting in place of Kevin Allison this week, and this is, of course, When the Saints Go Marching In, performed by the Dukes of Dixieland. The reason I'm hosting this week, and the reason we're playing this song, is that unfortunately Kevin's dad passed away last Thursday after a recent very bad fall, so Kevin went home to be with family in Cincinnati and help plan the funeral. This song is one of Kevin's dad's favorites, and he always said he wanted it played at his funeral. Everyone on the Risk team is sending Kevin big hugs and wishing the whole Allison family the best in this very sad time. And I want to say how grateful for and proud of the whole Risk team Kevin and I are, because they've all stepped up immediately to fill in for Kevin and make things work in his absence, and as always, they're doing a fabulous job with all of it, and Risk would never happen without all of them. Special thanks to Jeff Barr, our episode editor, and John LaSala, our audio editor, who stepped up to figure out a game plan for this episode right away when we found out that Kevin had to be out of town. And special thanks to Cindy Freeman and Brad Lawrence, our casting directors and story coaches, who did an awesome job guest hosting our Risk Live online show in Kevin's absence last week. Since Kevin will be home in Cincinnati all this week, we'll be having this week's live online risk show hosted by Cindy and Brad again. That show is coming up this Thursday, August 6th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Those are U.S. time zones. And as always, you can get your tickets for it at risk-show.com slash tour. And remember, you can scroll down below the episode description of this episode in your podcast player and just click the link for tickets. These online live shows are so much fun. I've been producing every single one, so I've seen all of them. And the stories that are told are just so well-performed, well-told, fascinating. And it's such a beautiful experience to be in an online Zoom room with, you know, a hundred strangers listening to these fascinating stories and just all, you know, being on the edge of our seats together or laughing together or, you know, whatever the story might inspire us to feel. So I really, really recommend if you've never been to a risk live show, if you have been to a risk live show, if you've been to one of these online shows before, but not in a while, come on back. They're going really, really, really great. And every week I think, man, you know, if everybody really knew how good these shows were, they would all be here. So come on, check us out. Get your tickets and information at risk-show.com slash tour. And remember, not all the stories that happen on the Risk live online shows will make it to the podcast. So if you want to make sure that you're hearing all the incredible stories shared on Risk, coming to our live online shows is the way to do it. Now, this week's episode is called Dear Old Dad, because in honor of Kevin's dad, we wanted to take a look back at some of our most heartwarming stories about fatherhood. We'll be back next week with a regular episode of all new risk stories, but the classic stories on this week's episode are so great. Who cares if you might have heard some of them before? Not me. There's still a lot to enjoy here. In a little bit, we'll hear photographer Shen Wei, who you can find at shenwei.studio. Before that, we'll hear from storyteller Colleen Hinsley, who you can find at colleenhinsley.com. But first, a story that Kevin first shared on the show in April of 2012 about his dad. It's a story we call The Exhibitionist.
4: You no, every family has a, a bunch of stories that they break out every time they're all together. Right? Uh, they tell them and they retell them and everyone's got different versions. And they, they disagree about the details. And this is one that comes from my clan. Uh, I come from a long line of assless men. <laughs> Uh, my father his father uh, his brothers their sons my brothers we if you if you look at my backside you will see that I don't so much have a ballast there as what I prefer to call a lack thereof and I used to be rather concerned about this but one year when I was in high school my mother and my father and I we went to Edisto South Carolina which is a place that is it's very rare that you still find these places in America where there's actually more locals there than there are tourists you know it, it's still very quiet and it's very 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 southern uh, people are very salt of the earth there so Once we arrived in Edisto, it's about 1988, I'm about 18 years old, uh, we we were starving. So we wanted to go to a restaurant right off the beach, and we got in there, and we were like, oh my God, everyone had the same idea today, because the place was packed. So the hostess kind of wedges us into the middle of this completely packed restaurant. Now my father is a very fat man. And he always has been, you know. He loves his beer. Uh, he loves the fat on the edges of the steak more than the steak. And people always think of him as kind of being a little bit like Santa Claus only with a red beard. So. We wedge in there, and he's just kind of, you know, getting it because he's right behind him. There's this little girl, about a 12-year-old girl, in a wheelchair. So he's kind of bumping up against her and wedging down into a seat. And then as soon as we're seated, Dad has to stand up again. He's like, oh, God damn it! I just have to get this sweatshirt off. So he wedges himself back up and hits the girl in the wheelchair again. And he starts trying to get this sweatshirt off What was too tight on him with his big bulbous belly and he starts yanking around at it and as he starts this process i begin to notice that he's taking the white undershirt that's underneath the sweatshirt up along with the sweatshirt right So my mom starts going up, Paul, Paul, Paul. And he's just like, God, shut up, Carol. I'm just going to take this sweatshirt off. And he's pulling it up. And more and more of his belly is being exposed. And then many things happened within the next few seconds. He's pulling and pulling and finally he does manage to get it up around his face but it gets stuck there. Now he's kind of blindfolded himself and he's managed to kind of tangle his arms above his head too. So his belly is sticking out there in the middle of the restaurant for everyone to see and he just starts like thrashing around like some sort of alien monster with tentacles and everyone and everyone's looking like, what on earth is going on? And with all the thrashing and wriggling, my dad must have temporarily forgot that a belt is not very useful for an assless man. In our case, you really are only safe with suspenders. But dad always hated suspenders. So while he's wriggling around and my mom's like, Paul, Paul, and he's like, God damn it, Kara, i just got to get this off. His shorts hit the ground. And he's got these old, old fruit of the loom tidy whities. They're all stretched out and full of holes. So he's standing there in the middle of the restaurant, like blindfolded, wearing nothing now but his shoes and his underwear, and everyone's looking. And the man, there's a man at the table with the the girl in the wheelchair. Now, this guy was pure Southern, like hardcore, like not a very chipper guy, right? he just jumps up and he's like, what the hell is going on here? Now, in fairness, it did appear that my dad was starting a dominant and submissive scene (laughs) right there in the middle of lunch. But my mom and I jump up. We're like, this is an accident? It's an accident? And my dad starts to realize what's going on and he just quickly, I've never seen him move so quickly as this, gets his shorts up and his shirt back down and he wedges himself back into a seat. And then all three of us just kind of start staring at our plates, like we're going to learn something there. (laughs) And (laughs) we realized that the man behind us was still standing, still making sure that this is really and truly over. And then he sits down. And it was just clear that no one in the restaurant thought that this was at all funny, which is why the three of us thought it was hilarious. we spend like the next half hour just in tears our stomachs hurting because we're trying to stifle this laughter for the longest time because we know it's annoying the people around us but we just couldn't help it so it gives me a special satisfaction to tell this story tonight because you know my mom she has a version of this story And my dad, he has a version of this story, and I always have to defend my version. But of the three of us, I'm the one with a podcast. (laughs) Thank you.
3: My dad and I were sitting together in the waiting room of the clinic where he was receiving radiation treatments for his lung cancer. And he was really quiet that day, which was unusual for him because he was typically a very gregarious guy. But that day he was really quiet and seemed very sad. So I, of course, was doing my best to try to distract him and making small talk and teasing him and trying to get him to laugh. And he was having none of it. He He wouldn't even look at me, let alone smile. So we just sat quietly for a few minutes. And finally, he started to move around a little bit. And he he made this gesture with his hand toward his throat. And he said, I can't sing anymore. And that was the only time I ever saw him cry. It's understandable that he'd be upset. He was so sick and he was weak. But really because he had always had a beautiful, booming, baritone voice. Especially his singing voice. And at that point, his voice had become a ghost of what it once was. It was thinner and bonier even than his body was becoming. And... I had the feeling that he knew, before then, that his singing voice was disappearing. But I think it was the first time he ever said it out loud. And I know that I was the only one that he ever confided that to. My dad was a classically trained opera singer. He loved Pavarotti and all the opera singers, but he also loved popular music like Frank Sinatra. He loved, you know, whatever was on the radio, kind of in the 60s, the Rat Pack. He just loved it all. And he was always singing in the house. He had a huge record collection. And all of us were always singing, too. We had this big three-story house. We were all just yelling up and down the stairs and singing. And my dad would say, hey, listen to this. And he'd put a record on the hi-fi. And there would be some new song that he'd want us to listen to. When the
5: world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of
3: you. So the house was always alive with music all the time. And my dad, he was the guy who could work a tune into any situation. He was known for just busting into song in the middle of a conversation. Or if you had a name he could musicalize, he would do it. So if I brought a girlfriend home from school and she'd say, Hi, I'm Katie. He would say, Oh, Katie, beautiful Katie. You're the only girl that I adore. He was just so charming. And he loved an audience. My parents owned this great big Irish pub in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which was back in the days when the Irish bar was not America's favorite franchise. It was really a unique thing. The name of the place was Fiddler's Green, but we all just called it The Place.
1: Well in the merry month of Ainah no, from me home I started left the girls and until nearly broken hearted saluted father dear kissed me darling mother drank a pint of beer me grief and tears the smother than off to reap the corn and leaf for I was born got a stout my heart the bunish ghost and gown and a runny bare
5: of roast to rock the love of the bugs and frighten all the dogs on the rocky roads a double of one
1: to three foot five butter hair a ton
3: of gold. Every Friday and Saturday night at the place he would put on a show he would have a piano player and a drummer, sometimes a singing partner, and people would come from all over to hear him sing. They really would. And he had this knack for remembering people, especially their names. And if you didn't have an Irish last name, he would have to give you one. So he'd be on the stage, and a guy would walk in and he would yell out from the stage Dave O'Goldstein, thank God you're here. We've been waiting for you. Have a seat, have a seat. And he just included everybody in the show. Everybody felt like they were part of the family. And because it was, of course, an Irish place, the repertoire was mostly Irish music. And there were a million songs. There were fighting songs and drinking songs. There were love songs. There were songs about the famine and the troubles. There were these gut-wrenching sad songs about wrongful imprisonment and long separations from your family. But there were also these songs about petty crimes, like, who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? (laughs) And these were the songs the crowd loved, the sing-along songs. But my dad, his favorite, his passion, was Broadway show tunes.
5: They couldn't pick a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late.
0: Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife.
5: Don't be living in a brand new state Brand new state
3: He loved them all. He loved everything from Cats to Camelot, the King and I, Carousel, you name it. He loved it. He would always try to work as many as he could into his show. And in fact, the big crowd pleaser was usually the Oklahoma medley, which you can imagine. You're doing fine, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A.
5: Oklahoma!
3: Killed every time, seriously. The crowd just loved it. He would also do a patriotic medley, which would have songs like God Bless America and Yankee Doodle Dandy, and he would just get the crowd on their feet and we'd be... Marching around the place. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The whole bar on their feet, parading around the bar. He just had everybody, like I said, everybody was part of the show. As for me, I was the only one of his six kids that he could ever coax up onto the stage with him to sing. And when I was little, all he needed to say was... Here's our Colleen! And I would come running eagerly up to the stage just to sing a few bars with whatever he was singing. But usually, he would just start singing. The sun'll come out! And I would run up and just sing, Tomorrow! Because that was my favorite song from my favorite musical, Annie. And uh, it was very cute, and we loved to sing together. And I was so little, I was maybe five or six. And as I got a little older, I started to get shyer. Partially because I started to recognize that my dad had this beautiful singing voice and maybe I wasn't such a great singer because I was eight. But also, I kind of started to realize at that time that I wasn't the cutest kid on the block. I was kind of unfortunate looking as a kid and I started to be really shy about that. So if my dad realized that I was being resistant to coming up on the stage, he would just look at me and say, sing out, kid, sing out. And I would. I would get up and I would sing out because that's what he told me to do and that's what we did. So over the years, we continued to sing together and when I was finally old enough to legally work in the bar, we really started to sing all the time together and we started to settle into what would become our signature duet. (laughs) And it was called, You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile. And it was also from the musical Annie. Every Friday and Saturday night, we would sing this song. He would start. Hey, hobo man, hey, Dapper Dan. Then I'd join in. You've both got your styles together. But brother, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Every weekend, we sang the song. We must have done that song together more than 200 times in my life. And we knew it all down pat. We knew every point where we could riff and wink at each other and smile and do our little patter. And uh, it was really great. The audience loved it. They asked for it every week. And I had mixed feelings about it, though. I remember having mixed feelings because, on the one hand, I idolized my dad. I loved singing with him. And I also loved the idea that he wanted to sing with me and that he was proud of me and he liked to sing with me. But on the other hand, by the time I got into my 20s, I was really... Into rock and roll and pop music. I really was not into Broadway tunes. And so secretly, I thought the song was a little lame. And I had that feeling going in. And the other thing is that I was a waitress and a bartender at the place. By the time my dad would get around to saying, Here's our Colleen, and we could do our duet, the dinner rush would be over. I would be sweating and disheveled, wearing a dirty apron. Reeking of cigarette smoke and French dressing and old dollar bills. And I'd have to go up there and sing with my six foot tall, dapper dad in his sport coat with his baritone. And I just felt a little out of place. And sometimes I was embarrassed, but I always did it. I always sang out because that's what we did. Eventually, I left Philadelphia and I moved to New York. New York, New York, a hell of a town, the Bronx is up and the batteries down, which my father would sing to me every time I saw him. I continued to sing on my own, um, not professionally, but for myself, and although I was very happy, sort of secretly happy, that the opportunities to sing our signature song became fewer and farther between. But now I can't remember the last time we sang together. I can't remember the time when we sang You're never fully dressed without a smile. I mean, obviously, it was before my parents retired and sold the bar. It was before the place became a sports bar called Screwballs, before my dad's cancer. And thinking about that day in the waiting room, I had been thinking that my father was feeling so terrible because the treatments that were meant to make him better were actually making him feel worse. But really... The absolute worst thing for him about being so sick was losing his voice, was not being able to sing. Our whole family at that time, we were all still optimistic. We really believed that he was going to beat the cancer, that he was going to get past this. And we were encouraging him to keep up with his treatments. We were taking him to the clinic. We were trying to keep his spirits up. But that day, to me, he said, It's gone. And it's never coming back. And I wish that I could say that that day, in that moment, that I sang to him, that I sang for him, but I couldn't. All I could do was sit there and hold his hand silently. And in the weeks to come, which would be his last weeks, I still couldn't sing. Right when my father was losing his voice, at a time when I could have and probably should have filled the house with music and singing, I lost my voice too. In fact, we all did. Music left our home entirely. We didn't have a wake. We didn't sing at the funeral. Uh, There wasn't a band at the lunch after the funeral, which for an Irish funeral is completely unheard of, and even for a Hindsley party, not having a band, not having even someone burst into a round of On the Way to Cape May or Take Me Back to Manny Young or Danny Boy, we just lost it all. After my father passed away, in those next months, that next year, all I can remember is quiet. I can't remember a moment where I felt happy, where I felt music, where I felt like singing. It was completely silent in my memory, almost like someone hit the mute button on my life. And it took me a long time to get back to it. It took me probably more than a year before I was able to even sing in the shower or in the car. But finally I did. I started to sing again, little by little, with friends, finally in a band, and that felt amazing. That felt like I had found music again, like I had found my voice. And I was so happy and so relieved that that had happened. And now it's been about four years since dad passed away and the musical Annie came back to Broadway. I went to see it recently with some friends and honestly I was dreading it because I had this fear that hearing that music again, hearing our song, would bring back all of that regret and that guilt. That I'd been carrying about sending my father so silently into his death. I was afraid that it would reach up and steal my voice again. But sitting in the theater from the time that the opening strains of the music started all the way through to when those orphans were singing, you're never fully dressed without an S-M-I-L-E I just felt nothing but joy and happiness. And it was as if finally I understood that even though I didn't get to send my father off, I didn't get to sing him out of this life, he would be so thrilled and proud to know that I continue to sing through my own, that I continue to sing out. And I am, I am singing out.
2: At 23 years old, I found myself standing in front of a painting by Vincent van Gogh. The painting was The Olive Trees with Yellow Sky and the Golden Sun. The painting was so fascinating to me because I had seen this painting many times when I was a child in the newspaper but I just couldn't imagine one day I was standing in front of the painting, looking so closely, almost recognized the brushstroke from the artist. Then I walked from room to room, I saw Monet's green stacks, I saw Roman statues, Egyptian mummies, even the art collection from China, my native country, was astonished me. You see, I had never stood so close to creations I found so magnetic. I had never seen these sort of masterpieces that spoke directly to my heart right in front of my face. Because I was raised in Shanghai in a slum, I had never stepped foot in an art museum before, and I couldn't get over how much I feel like I'd arrived at home. My childhood in the slum was full of trouble. I lived with my parents, my grandparents, three aunts, two uncles, a few cousins, some cats, rats, and the cockroaches, all under one roof. I didn't have my own room, so I spent a lot of time just outside, playing with other children, chasing around the maze that was the street of the slum. In the summertime, I would sleep outside in the communal courtyard for the entire season to escape the heater of the house. Our cooling system was fans made of bamboo leaves and uh, just one electrical fan that everybody was fighting over. My parents married during the Cultural Revolution in China that lasted from late 60s through late 70s. People who were wealthy and suspected to being capitalists were being harassed or put in labor camps or even worse. My mother's father was an entrepreneur. He owned an engineering firm and the family lived very uh, lushly in this mansion in French concession but my grandfather's success made him a target when the cultural revolution began he was stripped nearly everything he had owned so my mother did what so many other wealthy young women in china did at the time she decided to marry into a poor family for a more stable future she met my father, the son of a construction worker. She married him and left her childhood in the mansion behind. And then she moved to the slum with my father. They fell in love, but their life was very hard. They both worked long hours in the factories, and the countless difference in their family background got them fighting all the time. Because of my mother's upbringing, she was very westernized. I have never seen her dressed in Chipa, which is this traditional Chinese-style uh, dress. She drank a lot of coffee rather than tea, taught me how to use a um, fork and a knife. She once brought a whole family to a park for a picnic trip, but no one around us actually understand the concept of picnic. She was also interested in fashion design. She always dressed very nicely, and she made clothes for everyone in the family. I often looked too dapper for the slum. I had this chocolate-colored striped suit. Um, Very, very chic. She would sometimes put hair oil on me, just make me look extra nice, my hair is always so shiny under the sun. When I strolled with her through the slum, everyone commented on us. Some admiring us, but most were just very jealous. My mother became like a fashion icon in the slum. All the women came to her and asked her to design clothes for them. She developed a talent for making very classy looking dress from very cheap fabric. Years after the Cultural Revolution ended, she left her factory job, went to a fashion school, and became a full time clothing designer. Even before she was retired, she designed clothes for publishing houses and TV productions. <music> Meanwhile, My father never left his factory. He's been fixing machines his whole life. When I was young, he would work long days and came home very tired and sometimes frustrated with everyone at home. Perhaps life was too overwhelming for him at the time. The constant stress and the work and exhaustion. Sometimes he was even abusive because of it. I was very scared of him when I was a kid. He would always hear me when I went home with a very bad school report. We had a good time too, but I started to forget all about those. My memories of my childhood always went back to getting beat up by my father. After a while, I just stopped talking to my father. I began to feel that we were so different. It was almost as if we weren't related. One day, when I was eight years old, my mother discovered my textbooks were covered with pencil drawings. She said, This is my art gene. It has been passed to Weiwei which is um, my nickname from my mother. She was so proud to think that I may be an artist, and she began to send me to this weekend art schools. As it turned out, I actually really loved art classes. I grew to love drawing and design. Eventually, I was accepted to an art college in Shanghai, and I began to understand for sure that I was an artist. I'm grateful that my parents made that possible for me. But studying art in China in the late 90s was difficult because it wasn't the best environment for self expression Resources were very limited. You don't get to see a lot of uh, art books from overseas and the internet was not that common at the time and the Chinese society was still quite restrictive. My art school was more practical than actually artistic. One time, our assignment was to design a perfume bottle, but none of the students had ever used or owned a perfume. I went home and I painted a big breast woman on this beer bottle for my assignment, My parents were very shocked and confused but they were just happy I was not getting trouble on the street. My mother continued to be excited about my art studies. She began to speak me like a peer since she felt like we cut from the same cloth as they say. But my father never seemed to know what to say to me about art. It seemed like art was just an alien thing to him, not a part of his world of machine and work. For a while, I was working in this design firm. One morning, I was ready to leave for work. My father questioned me why I don't bring any tool to work. I looked over to my father and impatiently responded, I use my brain. I can see his eyes dimmed down to a slice of embarrassment and anger. Sometimes he will listen to Shanghai Opera, which is kind of a music that comes from this folk tradition in Shanghai, seen in the Shanghai dialect, not like the world-class Beijing Opera which is considered high art, and uh, it is admired by music lovers from all over the world. I remember being a teenage, watching my father hum along to the Shanghai Opera and hoping he could have a better taste for finer things in life. The more I grew to love art, and the more I felt it was in my genes like my mother said, the more my father and I seemed to be from a different world. I knew I should go see and study real art, where the artists can express themselves whenever they want. So, in the summer of 2000, I landed in the United States. I was accepted by the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, a grade school where I continued to discover who I am and what I want. I saw and did so many things for the first time, including making the kind of art I love. After three years in Minneapolis, I moved to New York City and went to graduate school trying to survive and making art. When I moved to the U.S., I drifted apart from my father even more. I would talk to my mother on the phone all the time, but if my father answered the phone, the conversation would be painfully awkward. We were just two people with nothing in common anymore. A couple years ago, my parents came to New York to visit me. It was my father's first trip out of China. I brought them to Washington D.C. and we went to the National Gallery of Art. My mother was tired so she went sit in the coffee shop the whole time and uh, left me with my father. We walked room to room silently. We don't even talk to each other. It's completely wordless. We walked through this long hall of sculptures. I intentionally speeded up so I can just get over this awkwardness as fast as I can. Then I saw my father sat down at this one bench staring very intensely in front of him. I thought he must be lost in thought about something. So I just stood still holding my position by the door and uh, hoping to exit the gallery as soon as possible. But I just watching him just sitting there, not even moving. I feel like he must sit in there for a long, long time. Finally, I walked over to him, trying to signal him that we ought to move on. Before I said anything, he turned his head to me, leaned his body forward a little bit, pointed his finger to a bronze statue right in front of him and said, That is the most beautiful thing I have seen in my life. At that moment, I realized that my father was in a museum for the first time in his life. And just as I had such a profound experience the first time I stepped foot in a museum in Minneapolis, so was he. He was staring at Rodin's The Thinker, a nude man in sober meditation battling with a powerful internal struggle and the sculpture might as well have been alive for him it might as well have been a sculpture of him at the moment I almost burst into tears there was so much about my father that I had never seen before and could only see now that we were in this new environment away from the place he had a relentlessly difficult life in the past six decades. Later, I heard my father sing discreetly by himself in the hotel bathroom. I even came to realize how beautifully simple and true those old Shanghai folk opera songs had always been, though I'd failed to see it before. And I was telling myself, My father and I are not really so different and that's my art gene.
0: This is Risk, this is Ings Behind Me Now, and we just heard stories by Kevin Allison, Colleen Hinsley, and Shen Wei. Just a quick note that we made a promise to you guys long ago, and that promise was that if we ever hit $10,000 per month in fan support on slash risk, we would make a special ballad version of Kevin's classic stamps.com song and play it for everyone to enjoy on the podcast. We're currently at around $8,100 a month of fan support on Patreon. So I'm just saying, a lot of you say that you miss the stamps.com song, and so do we. So why don't you head over to patreon.com slash risk and help put us over the top of that $10,000 per month goal so we can rip you all a new asshole with an epic ballad version of the Stamps.com song. You know how Kevin loves a new asshole. And in trying economic times like these, wouldn't you love a shiny new asshole torn into you by your favorite little true storytelling podcast? <laughs> I know I would. I've had the same asshole for almost 37 years at this point. It's time to treat myself to a
4: new one.
0: Our final story is by Ernest Anfin. That's a pseudonym, so don't go trying to find him on the social medias now, you hear? Some people like their privacy while telling true stories from their real lives on a very popular podcast. This story is one of our all-time favorites here at Risk. Here's Ernest Anfin with a story we call Marilyn. I will speak your
2: name.
1: So, we're going to go back to a sub zero day in January of 2003. I was meeting with my divorce attorney in the thriving cafeteria in downtown Minneapolis. We were getting together to talk about the results of her investigation. She was investigating the activities of my soon to be ex wife. We sat down, and of course, Initially, the conversation was light and casual. But shortly thereafter, she put down her fork. She quit eating her salad. And she looked at me with tears welling up in her eyes. And she said, there's just no easy way to tell you this. You're on the brink of bankruptcy. And you may not be the biological father of your children. My family was destroyed by... Deception and infidelity, and I found out at the Thriving Cafeteria. My ex, unbeknownst to me, had run up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt using my forged signature and a secret P.O. box. The interest alone on this debt every month was around $4,000. And that's not, that was the good news. (laughs) The bad news was that she had had an affair throughout our entire marriage, one that predated our marriage. In fact, predated the conception of our children by several years. And until I was sitting there in that cafeteria, I knew nothing about this man, this stranger, who was so intertwined in my life. All I knew was that he was 20 or 30 years older than me, but as my lawyer said... He might be the father of my children. My children, two of them. August was about four at the time. He was this blonde-haired, big-boned boy that looked like he could crush any of his friends. But if the other boys were roughhousing, August was more likely to be off in a corner painting a picture or singing a song, lost in his own world. His favorite thing to do every night was to grab a book and crawl in my lap. And we would read that book until its last page. And then he would flip them all over and say again. And we would read that book over and over and over again until he fell asleep in my arms. My daughter, Ava, was about a year old at the time, a year and a half. Even at that age, she was very mischievous, and she continues to be very mischievous. She, uh, if you need a visual reference, think of Boo from Monsters, Inc. At that point in her life, that was the way, shape, and form of Ava. Like Boo, she had a tender side as well. I remember one day the kids were playing in the toy closet. It was this big closet, like the size of a room. And I was in the corner just crying, and I was sitting there watching the kids, they were playing with their action figures, they were jabbering back and forth with each other, and I was watching this ballet of sorts, and I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that perhaps these two beautiful creatures, the most beautiful things that I thought I could ever create in my life, were a lie, I knew my marriage was a lie, but what if this was a lie too? What if I had nothing to do with them being on this planet? Ava noticed me crying, and she crawled across the floor and into my lap and buried her head in my chest and wrapped her arms around me, squeezing as tightly as her little body could squeeze me, all the while just gingerly patting me on the back. It was amazing. I mean, this little girl who couldn't even talk yet was trying to take my pain away. Was trying to squeeze the pain out of me, a pain that could not be taken away. I knew then that, of course, the biology didn't matter. I loved her. I loved August. I had to stay and fight for this love. The only way this love could be lost is if I lost it, if I destroyed it. But the fight wasn't easy. I still to this day don't understand. She wouldn't agree to joint custody, would not agree to it. And to this day, she still, we get along fine, but amazingly. But um, we've been divorced for 18 years, so it takes as much energy to hate as it takes to love. And I have tried to neither hate nor love her. Obviously, the love part isn't the issue, but the hate part, you've got to let that go. The uh, divorce process was against me. She was the primary caregiver. Regardless of everything she did, she was the stay-at-home mom. I was the big firm lawyer with a crazy work schedule. And let me tell you something, the court really doesn't give a shit about you and your kids if you're going through a divorce. The court system wants to take the easy path. And the easy path in our situation was to award custody to my ex and hope that I went away. But even when things seemed to be going well, when I felt I was making some progress and the presumption of the primary caregiver was dwindling, she had another club that she would use against me whenever she had the opportunity, and that club was depression. I came from a long line of depressed people, and my personal depression was compounded by the golden boy status I had growing up in a small town in Iowa I felt like the world's eyes were always upon me. I felt like I had to be the perfect athlete, the perfect student, the perfect person. And even though I'd been in therapy and on medication for years, my ex knew how much I was tormented by failure or the perception of failure would be magnified in my mind a hundred times, a thousand times. And here I was failing at the biggest thing in life, failing as a father, failing as a husband. The system had no problem picking up that club and helping her hit me with it. With that club, I was not only the non-primary caregiver, I was also not fit because I was depressed. And it wasn't just the system and my ex. Everywhere I went, it felt like people criticized me. I would go to Target after work to get groceries, and I'd have my kids with me just like any mom but people weren't used to seeing a man alone with a kid back then in the early 2000s and if my kids acted up at all inevitably some old person would come up to me and say well dad that wasn't such a good idea now was it coming shopping without the wife and then they'd laugh and walk away and those comments happen far more often than you can imagine unless you're another divorced father But the shopping critics weren't the worst. The worst was at church. I grew up in a family where I was told that if you're in pain, if you're in need of support, go to church. And I was in pain, and I needed support, so I went to church. But it didn't matter what church we went to. And again, I don't think these people were wanting to harm me. But after the service, some older person would come and say, hey, Dad, where's the wife? Is she at work today? Or they'd ask my kids, where's Mom? And again, I don't think they meant anything by these questions consciously, but in my mind, they cut like a knife to my bone. I mean, to me, they sought assurance that I belonged there, my kids belonged there, we were a Christian family. There was a wife, there was a mom, she just wasn't there that day, but she's around, certainly. We're not some misfits that wandered in off the street. And all of the negativity and criticism that I was feeling at that time seemed to be embodied in this old woman who would sit in the lobby of my post-divorce apartment building day after day in the lounge chairs next to the mailboxes. She was a very small woman, fragile, probably about 80. She had this dark dyed hair and this white skin, eyebrows painted on her forehead, these Half lens reading glasses that were always perched on the tip of her nose and a chain around her neck. And she saw everything that I went through day after day after day. She saw all of my struggles, all my failures, because she was always there. She saw me the day that Ava thought it would be hilarious to poop in the pool, which was right next to the lobby. And I was frantically swimming around in the pool trying to pick up the little poop things. Because they were either going to disintegrate or they were going to go on the filter system of the pool. <laughs> and I, I, I felt like a bad dad that day, but think shit happens, right? <laughs> she was there the day that Ava threw my keys down the elevator shaft, and we had to get maintenance to fish them out. And, you know, it's not like these things happen and you're all happy. with. Oh, that's so cute. Years from now, I was mad, you know. I was mad. And she saw me mad. And she saw me lose it. And she was just always there. She never said anything. She never did anything. She just stared at us. And she was there the day that I opened my mailbox. And there were two envelopes in that mailbox from the Memorial Blood Center. If you don't know what the Memorial Blood Center is, it's a good thing. Because that's where Hennepin County sends you if there's a paternity issue and you need your blood tested. So those two envelopes were going to tell me, once and for all, whether I was the biological father of my children. You know, it wasn't Jerry Springer. Wasn't, uh, there was no drama, no drum roll, nothing like that. I open the envelopes, and it's just two charts with just numbers and numbers. And I'm frantically searching the charts, trying to figure out what do they say. And at the bottom, I see words, finally. And it says, percentile probability of paternity. And next to those words were the numbers, 99 point whatever, whatever, whatever percentage. At that moment, a huge weight was lifted from my shoulders. It was news that I had waited months to hear. It meant that I was the father of both of my kids. And I fell into those lounge chairs and I cried immediately, uncontrollably. And through those tears, I kept searching that form, those charts to make sure I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. And when I came to my senses, I looked up, and there sitting across the table from me was the old lobby lady with her eyebrows painted on her forehead and her black eyes staring at me and her brow furrowed. She didn't need to say anything. She was telling me everything I needed to know with her expression. She was saying, young man, I don't know what the hell this emotional outburst is all about. (laughs) but not in my lobby. Not here, not now, not ever. (laughs) She said nothing, offered nothing, asked nothing. I just knew it was time to leave. So I gathered up my charts and my envelopes and I quietly went back to my apartment. And all of this judgment, criticism, negativity led my depression into a very dark place. Many nights when I went to bed, I felt as if there was a demon lying next to me, and the demon did not speak, the demon hissed. I mean, it, it hissed. And it, and it told me the same things over and over, minute after minute. You're no man, you're no husband. Your wife fucking cheated on you with an old guy. You couldn't even compete with an old man. What kind of a man are you? Oh, and your kids, yeah, they love you. Your kids are infants, which means they're idiots. They don't know you. They just love you because they don't have a choice. When they grow up and they figure out what kind of a fucked up, depressed asshole you are, they'll hate you because you will probably fuck them up over the next decade or so as well. The world's right. We'd be better off without you. Your ex, the courts, they're all right. Just fucking go away. And minute after minute, I would lie there and just want to go away. To escape that demon... And at the foot of my bed, there was a patio door, a sliding patio door that led to the ninth floor balcony of my apartment. And beyond that balcony, there was this beautiful meadow of light. It was the lights of Edina just spread out beneath that balcony like little flowers blossoming on this very, very dark hillside. And I knew that all I had to do was walk across my bedroom, slide that door open, and lean over that rail and fall into that bed of light. Fall into that meadow of light and sleep forever. That sleep would quiet these voices. That sleep would make the demon go away. That sleep would leave me in peace, finally. I just wanted the struggle to end. I felt like I was Job from the Bible. I felt God had long, long ago abandoned me. And the most that I could pray for was for God's wrath to pass over me, for the night to end, for the demon to quit hissing, for the meadow of light to disappear, for this struggle to just stop. And minute after minute, it was a fight with that door. And the worst fight of all was that I didn't know what the future held. One day was a particularly bad day. We went to court to receive the custody evaluator's recommendation. And if you've been in a divorce, you also know that nothing can happen as far as custody is concerned until your evaluator gives you a recommendation. Ina had been to court, well, Ina was the custody evaluator, She had been to court many, many times, and every time she'd go to court, she'd get up and she'd say to the judge, Oh, Your Honor, I'm so sorry. I am not ready. I need more time. I have a lot of cases, and this man, this father, is being very difficult. You know, he doesn't understand the whole primary caregiving thing, and he's depressed. And I've got lots of cases. And every day, the judge would give her a continuance every day that we were supposed to get that report. That day, she left the court, and she saw how frustrated I was, and she walked up to me, and she said, you've got to come to an agreement with your wife. You're going to lose your kids. And I said, Ina, I'm never going to voluntarily give up my kids. She said, well, if I file my report, you'll lose. And I said, Ina, I am never going to make your job easy. If I'm going to lose my kids, you're going to have to take them away from me. File your fucking report. And I turned around and walked away from her. There was nobody who cheered me at that point. (laughs) Even after the trauma that day, you know, life didn't end. It was a Wednesday. So I had my kids that night, and I had no laundry. Laundry is always there. We all know that. So I took my kids, and I went down to the laundry room of my apartment building, and it was this incredibly bright room. Everything was white. And in the corner, they had some plastic chairs and a little table and, you know, magazines and some kids' books. And I took the kids over to the corner and I left them there. And guess what? The old lobby lady is sitting there staring at me that day, (laughs) saying nothing, asking nothing, offering nothing. And I just didn't have time or energy to deal with her. I just, I never dealt with her really. I dealt with her by ignoring her. And I just walked past her. I started to sort clothes. I was too preoccupied with the whole Ina situation and I was sorting my clothes and I was like my god what have I done that was the stupidest thing in the world. I mean I felt like I'd signed the death warrant on my custody dispute. I thought I was forcing Ina's hand to pull the switch on that electric chair. I mean what could I do? Could I apologize to her? How would I apologize? Well should I? No you did the right thing. You stood up to her. That was the right thing to do and I was shaking, and I couldn't stop myself from shaking. It was like I had Parkinson's or something. And then all of a sudden, whack, August! And there was a scream from the corner. There was this clatter of plastic and ripped pages and skin being slapped. And I went to the corner, and I picked up Ava, and I grabbed August by the hand, and I dragged him back to the washing machine. And at that point, every molecule in my body was exploding. It was bursting it felt like it was bursting out of every pore of my skin and I was doing everything I could to just keep it together but I was losing the battle the membrane was breaking and I was on the verge of tears and then all of a sudden I felt this hand on my shoulder and I was startled and I turned around and it's the old lady from the lobby I'm like okay let's go You decide today. Today of all the fucking days, you're going to come up to me and tell me I'm a shitty dad. I've been waiting for this, lady. And today you picked the wrong day. I don't care if you're 80. I don't. I'm going to rip your fucking head off. (laughs) She looked at me with an expressionless face above her little reading glasses. And she said in the sweetest, kindest voice, She said, I don't know who you are but you need to know you're a wonderful father. All of that energy that was traveling away from the center of my being at the speed of light just immediately reversed course and came imploding into my heart, and I fell into this 80-year-old woman. I fell into her body, and she wrapped her arms around me and squeezed me as tightly as an arthritic 80-year-old woman could squeeze me <laughs> and gingerly patted me on the back. And I said, who are you? (laughs) She said, I'm Marilyn. (laughs) Ava was still crying into my neck, still upset by the fight with her brother. I don't even think she noticed what was going on. August was standing next to me, his mouth agape. We had all been terrified of this woman for years, (laughs) scared to death of her. And here she was being nice, not just nice, just genuinely wonderful. And I said, Marilyn, I go, I can't tell you how much I needed to hear what you just told me. And she said, my dear, what's wrong? It can't be that bad. I whispered to her, I said, Marilyn, I'm fighting my ex for custody, and I'm going to lose. She took me by the shoulders and pushed me back so that she could look at me in the eye. And she said, well, I don't know anything about any of that. But anybody who's ever seen the three of you together can see how much you love each other. You can never lose that. No one can ever take that away from you. I'm not sure what happened that day in the laundry room, but if God has ever been present in my life, He was present in that moment. Marilyn was God's voice, Marilyn was God's touch, Marilyn was God's face. Because of Marilyn, I knew God hadn't abandoned me. And after that night, I never again heard the hissing voice of that demon. I never again considered the peace promised by that meadow of light. Ina filed her report. And true to Ina's word, she recommended that my ex get custody. And I lost custody of my kids. I was relegated to being a weekend dad. But I was a dad. And I'm still a dad. August is now 20 years old and goes to college in Chicago. Ava is a senior in high school. And uh, still, when she and I are together at night, we pray to God. And I kiss her on her forehead and she tells me she loves me. Marilyn... Saved me, not just that night, but she saved me so that I could experience a lifetime filled with dogs and cats. I don't know how many betta fish or hermit crabs. (laughs) A snake. I was able to experience countless trips to the cabin, band concerts and Dairy Queen blizzards. Because of her, I experienced for 18 years the joy love and fulfillment of fatherhood. One woman stood up and embraced me, held me close when it felt like the rest of the world was trying to push me away. One woman restored my belief in myself, my belief in myself as a father. One woman renewed my faith in love, my faith in the love of God. And Marilyn, I I know you're probably not with us anymore. But I just want to say thank you.
5: Down at the dinner table And has a bite to eat Never a frown Always a smile When he says to me How's my child I said that I've been Studying hard all day in school Trying very hard To understand the golden rule I think I'll color this man Father I think I'll color him love color him love Said I'm gonna color him father Man love yes I will
0: love. this is risk i'm jc cassis and this is the winstons behind me now that's our show for this week and remember next week we'll be back with brand new stories and our regular host kevin Allison. though i don't know if anything about kevin is really regular If you want to pitch us a true story from your life that you'd like to tell on Risk, do it. It's easy and quick. And all the information on how to pitch us is at risk-show.com slash submissions. We want to feature as diverse an array of storytellers on Risk as possible. So no matter who you are, we'd love to hear your story. If you can tell your story to a close friend, you can probably tell a story on Risk. So don't be intimidated and don't overthink it. Just send us a quick written description of what happens in the beginning, middle, and end of your story and why what happened was meaningful to you. If your story sounds like a good fit for the show, we'll help you workshop your story so it really shines. You can take online group or private or corporate storytelling classes with us at thestorystudio.org. You can also hire Kevin to coach you on storytelling or make a personalized video for you or a friend at kevinallison.com. You can also support us on Patreon, make a one-time donation to us through PayPal, get tickets for our online live shows or whatever else you might want to do by scrolling down in your podcast player and checking out all our links under the episode description. And if for some reason that's not working for you, just go to risk-show.com and you'll find everything you need and if you want to reach out to kevin and send him a picture of your butt to help cheer him up you can send it to kevin at risk-show.com remember to join us for our live online show this thursday august 6th at 9 30 p.m eastern time 6 30 p.m pacific and finally if you want to reach out to either your dad or a dad you know in your life and tell him you love him now's the time folks today's the day take a risk You know how Kevin loves a new asshole. I'm waiting for traffic. This motherfucker in his goddamn car. (laughs) You can also have... What the fuck even is that noise? You can also hire Kevin to coach you on storytelling... Or drive a fucking car by your window every two seconds. (laughs) Today's the day. Take a risk. Take a fucking propeller plane by my window.